Hi, this is Dr. MJ coming to you from beautiful Boston, Massachusetts. This is the Women in Dentistry podcast where we feature women in dentistry making waves and leading the industry through the next decade. I am your host, Dr. Mary Jane Hanlon, a former dental assistant, dental hygienist, and now dentist. I'm very pleased to introduce you today to Ms. Patty DeGange. Patty believes dentistry is no longer just about fixing teeth. Dentistry is oral medicine, and it's time we got around to truly practicing it. Her new brand, Beyond Oral Health, challenges us to do so. We can have a world with no cancer, cure not just managed periodontal disease, and we can also have a caries-free world, but not by doing more of the same. Patty's specialty is coding medically necessary codes. Her efforts have assisted thousands of professionals to code more accurately and efficiently. She teaches the why behind the codes. In fact, the American Dental Association recognized her expertise by inviting her to write a chapter in its CDT 2017 and 2018 companion. Patty holds publishing and speaking licenses with the ADA for current dental terminology. Patty shares her insight and expertise through a book series called Dental Codology books of easily digestible stories about patients we see every day. Her seventh book, Teledentistry Pathway to Prosperity, has hit the market. Patty also offers continued learning and growth through a dental codology insider group and online CONI programs. On a personal note, Patty and her husband have moved out of their home of 34 years and have chosen a new motorhome that includes a writer's desk so that Patty can travel while writing her first novel. It is now my pleasure to bring you to my interview with Ms. Patty DeGange. Hi, Patty. It's so good to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much for being willing to give up your time and, and share with our audience you know, how it is that you got involved in dentistry and what it is that you're doing today as a hygienist. So anytime, just go ahead and get started and let us know what you're doing. Well, I give courses that are even from three to six hours, so I won't take that long. But oh, please. I don't think our audience will stay with us for three to six hours. I'm honored because, you know, I've had a journey. Like, everybody's life is a journey. It's not a destination. And back in the very earliest days, I was working as a car hop at Dog and Sons. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I didn't wear roller skates. I'm not that coordinated. But... My family dentist, my father went in on a Saturday to have his denture adjusted. Yes, I had parents with dentures who didn't teach me any dental values because they didn't have any. Anyway, he, I'm one of four sisters, and the dentist asked if one of the girls wanted, it was looking for a job. And my career at Dogman says was ending for the summer. It was the beginning of my senior year of high school. So I called up and said, I'm interested in your in the job that you have, although I'm sure I probably wasn't even that articulate. And he said, be there, be here Monday, white pants at three o'clock. So I arrived Monday there, three o'clock with white pants on. And I was said, they were pointed, there's the phone, there's the appointment book. And that was that. And I started <laughs> filling up, people called. Now they didn't call for a hygiene appointment or cleaning. Why? Because there was no hygienist in our entire town. Now I didn't live off in Nowhereville. I lived 20 miles straight west of downtown Chicago. But dental hygiene was not ubiquitous like it is now. We think it's always been like this. It was not. 
And so when the phone rang, if whatever they said, I filled in the lines, every single line from six, seven o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. I didn't know what I didn't know. So the next day I go in there at three o'clock with white pants, I'm sure the same white pants. I hadn't gotten any uh, x-ray processing stuff on them yet. That came, that probably came third or fourth day. They said, okay, we gotta talk to you about that scheduling, but not today, we have this other doctor that comes in and we need her to go help. So I assisted on a gingivectomy on day two at 16 and a half years old. My previous experience was I had teeth. That's it. My third day, now whether or not it really was the third day, but in my memory it was, because it's a long time ago, my doctor was part of the Kiwanis Clubs and I, he had me sell peanuts on the corner. Actually, I used to carry around a little bag of Kiwanis peanuts for years as a prop. And one day my husband ate my peanuts and he complained because they were stale. I go, yeah, they're probably 15 years old. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> they were a prop. The thing is, along the way, the first hygienist I ever met did start working in that dental office. So I learned a little bit about dental hygiene. And as it was the case with many women back then, because this was in the 60s, I thought my options for a career where I could be a teacher, I could be a secretary, or I could be a nurse. So I decided nursing, so I took the prereqs for nursing, which pretty much are the same prereqs as dental hygiene. And it was that first dental hygienist I ever met that became a mentor, and she's the one that helped me make the decision that dental hygiene could be a career for me. So in my area, there were no hygiene schools. There was a one of the first community college programs that was close to me, but not in, I wasn't in district. So I went as an out of district student. I got a special waiver they gave me for dental hygiene school. In that later in that, like just a couple months later, after starting in a dental office, though, my mom was killed in a car accident. Oh. She was there in the morning, and then when we left for school and she was gone by the time we got home, and that's when I became a mom. I was all of 17, and my sisters were eight and 13. So yeah, in that time though, I still applied to dental hygiene school and I was accepted. When I started dental hygiene school, I didn't think of it as a career track. I didn't think of it, I was pretty much doing what I thought I was supposed to do. And I was supposed to go to college, so I went to college. My grades weren't the best because I was very torn with lots and lots of responsibilities, as a lot of young women and a lot of people are in life. I had a lot of responsibilities. I still work part-time at the dental practice too. And so it was, it was an easy journey. I made it. I never liked the term skin on my teeth, but I'm pretty sure <laughs> I made it by the skin of my teeth out of hygiene school. I stayed working in the same practice even when I graduated. See, this mentor of mine said that she was going to wait to have her first child. Our timing was off a little bit. There was one hygienist between us. But I pretty much, it was the only model of dentistry I knew was in that one office. And I, I worked there, again, that was the only model I knew. I had nothing to compare to. And I remember even talking to the dentist at the time saying, you know, in school, we're learning it this way and this way and this way. And he, he'd go, oh, they're gung-ho. They teach you all that junk. You got to learn it for the tests and then... And what's really interesting is many years later, he apologized to me for that. He came to me and said, Patty, I did you a disservice. He goes, I'm a crabby old man at this point that got stuck in a rut. 
And me saying that to you when you were in your education was really a disservice to you. Now, the other part of that story, though, is uh, even though I was now a clinical hygienist, I was still seen by him and the others that worked there as the after-school girl. I think my behavior patterns were also that because as I've learned in my life is we teach people how to treat us. Yeah, I agree. And I think I didn't get much respect, but then I don't know that I felt that I was worthy of respect, even though I was a, a professional. So I worked there as a clinician for the first for, for 12 years. And finally, I got to about age 27 going, you know, this, this is a great life, but it isn't mine. I got I got married along the way, done all those things you're supposed to do. And at age 27, I said, hey, there's got to be more out there, and I'm going to go find it. I quit working at that office. I got divorced, lots of changes. And I've been on a journey ever since then. That's why I said in the beginning, life is a journey. To find my path and who I am that I used to wait and let other people define for me but we always need to find it for ourselves. Just before you go on, that is so critically important. I think women in general do that on a regular basis. And it's not just your age group, it's women of all ages. They let others define them instead of you choosing and defining yourself. And two very important pieces, and the second one I wanna highlight is your fact that you brought up you know, we allow people to treat us and educate them to treat us either good or bad. And what we allow is how we are treated. And two unbelievable pieces of advice. You're absolutely right on. You know, no, don't tolerate it. Don't tolerate being treated poorly. And that doesn't mean you have to be nasty. It means that you need to have a healthy boundary. I didn't have a healthy boundary. I actually have, as I find many people in healthcare, I had a very permanent boundary and I was actually an enabler. I was taught, whether it was, whether it was my mother's death and how I took care of my sisters and all that, but I was taught to be a rescuer. Now, a rescuer is an enabler and it's a very much, you do it out of love, as we find and we hear about it a lot in the world of drug abuse and alcohol abuse, et cetera, but it's actually very predominant in dentistry. We set up codependent relationships all the time. We set up, we will schedule, we'll pre-schedule you for six months. We will remind you, we will give you a toothbrush. We will do this. You don't ever have to be responsible because we will. And that's a very unhealthy and very common tendency of people that have felt for personalities. It usually goes over the line into being enablers. And that's part of uh, being a people pleaser. I want everybody to like me, so that means I have to like everybody else. That means I let them walk all over me. And that's really the definition of abuse. But we, the abuser is abusing, but the other person is letting themselves be abused. Exactly. So are you finished with your clinical hygiene? I, I'm dying to talk, have you talk about Beyond Oral Health because I know it's so fascinating to me, some of the work that you have done, the books that you have written, and what you've contributed to organized dentistry and especially to dental hygiene. I can't wait for you to talk about it. So, you know, if you're ready. I'm ready. Okay. Part of my journey then became I worked with a practice that at the time, I again, so many things in life we understand backwards, that was very leading edge. I am a leading edge futurist myself. I didn't know that about myself. But when I met that doctor, 
there was something about it. It was just like, whoa, this is cool. This is they're doing something different here. In that office, we were very technologically ahead of our time, and we were paperless and chartless in 1992. The way we became paperless and chartless is I bought the voice-activated charting system. And by the way, if people think they have trouble with voice activation these days, they should have done it back in 92. I paid $28,000 for it, and I leased it to the practice because the hygienist in Illinois can't own any part of a dental practice but I could own equipment and lease it to the practice. That was my way of having ownership. So that, there was also a lot of different continuing education that we did that was very unusual, out of the regular box of organized dentistry. And with that, that I was just like the, I wanted more and more and more. And I decided that I wanted to, what, let's see, the phrase I used was I wanted to speak and write and make a difference in my profession. I didn't know what that meant. At the time, I was a 15-year, two-year associate degree hygienist with no advanced degrees, with no qualifications, but I sat in so many courses going, I could do better than that, <laughs> okay? Why? Because I sat, and this goes into how long I practiced clinically, I had an always and a never when I went into the speaking world. I will always work clinical two or three days a week, and I'll never have corporate sponsorship. The word always and never to me are words I know now are global words where we're lying to ourselves because we're human. I always do something except for when I don't and I never do something except for when I do. So with those two things though, I did, it was very, very important that I keep a clinical presence and I did till 2017, till December 2017. So that means I practiced clinically 43 years. And it did keep me real. It was my learning laboratory. And though I worked on that very leading edge, the last 12 years, I worked completely other on the other end of the spectrum. And like, but I could look at my audiences and go, if I can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Because the real message here is we all predicate our own professionalism. We all decide every single moment and every single day what kind of professional I'm going to be today, what I can give today, and hopefully I'm giving the best I can on every any given day. So corporate sponsorship, that's a whole other story because I could find lots of volunteer to speak for free, but if I wanted to actually have something where I could create a business, then it was the idea of corporate dentistry. But I had a whole attitude about corporate dentistry too, because I sat in porches that were infomercials, and I won't do that. And what I had is I had, again, another mentor along the way that helped me, you know, sometimes you wear rose colored glasses. My, those were dark colored glasses. I was seeing everything through a filter of negativity. And what she helped me to see is that ethical companies don't want you to do an infomercial either. That I was painting the whole industry based on someone's bad version of something. It was someone that does an infomercial is a bad speaker. <laughs> That's the reality of it. So I've learned to balance it and I've created my own company. Um, along the way, and part of that paperless journey back in that office, I was also put on a medical malpractice jury. Best learning I could ever have to sit in a court 
for five days and watch this medical malpractice. And that is when I came back with the passion for what we were doing or not doing for documentation. Because that was the big part. I mean, we had interall cameras by then. We had, again, the voice activated charting, but how are we actually going to do our clinical notes? And that's led to the connection with coding and the coding world. Um, I became very interested in that world. I live in Chicago area, so I can go down to ADA and I can attend the coding meeting, which is an open meeting. And I went year after year after year, and I was often the only hygienist in the room. And hygienists do not have a say at that committee, other than you can go to the microphone because it is an open meeting and make do testimony, but we don't have a voting seat. So it became a passion of mine that, that hygienists need to have a voting voice on the codes committee. And that led to my membership group that we called Dental Codeology Consortium. We have been attending those meetings for the last four years. Just a couple of months ago, through the crazy COVID time, we did have a meeting with the Council on Dental Benefits and they are entertaining the idea of having allowing the voting hygienist member. So that's success right there. Absolutely. Didn't do it by myself at all. It's a, it was, it's a whole group of us and I'm real good at bringing people together and helping them find their own empowerment. Cause that's one of the things I discovered. I can't empower someone else any more than anybody empowered me. Now I had people that opened windows of opportunity for me to see through and I can do that for others, but the individual has to get up and do it on their own. Look through that window, go, hey, I see something I want to do. Find the door handle, turn the door handle, walk up on the other side of the door, and then do something. It isn't magic. My original men mentor said my initials, PCD, stand for Persistent Commitment and Determination. And that's a very high compliment. My husband calls those same behaviors stubborn. That's accurate, too. <laughs> And that's what it it's taken to build my business. I have a business, a membership group, and a very active business that is now been around for, well, we're having our fourth anniversary of our membership group, but I'm very proud of. I'm very proud of, but it isn't about me. It's about a whole bunch of us working together toward a shared purpose. Unbelievable. So let's explore more, more about the coding piece of this, because... You know, so often, you know, I understand the medical side because of, you know, the work I do at Tufts and we do medical coding as well as dental coding. It's complicated and it's not intuitive. You have to really know your stuff. So talk to me a little bit about what your membership does and, you know, how do you provide the education? And if somebody's interested, how do they find you? We started, I started with writing books, okay? Now, in order, one thing that needs to be clear, when I'm talking about coding at this point, I'm talking about CDT dental coding. And the American Dental Association actually owns the codes. They are the ADA's copywritten material. Why that's important is if somebody writes on them or speaks on them, teaches them, they are supposed to be licensed. I have to pay a license, actually two licenses, to ADA to write on them. And my first book, and I wrote little books, I'm going to hold this up. This is, this is a mini book. Okay, it's about the same size as a cell phone. Now, my belief, 
was at the time and still is, is that the, we're moving to electronic books and electronic everything, right? And this is the same size as a cell phone. So when somebody bought this book, they also got an electronic copy of it. Okay, this is called More Than Pocket Change. It's around perio coding. It's, I answered what I call the eternal questions. There's some questions I have answered over and over and over and over. But again, I'm licensed to do that. Medical coding, jumpstart diagnostic coding, I co-wrote with somebody else, another little book. And I wrote a little one on the gingivitis code. Then I had a dentist that came up to me <laughs> when I was given a course. And he said, you know, you say we do a lot of things in dentistry that don't have research behind them. I'm going, yeah, we do. And he goes, haven't you ever heard of the Book of Roma? I go, the Book of Roma? He goes, yeah, the Book of Roma. I just gave him a six-hour course. I was too tired to even talk about it. I'm going, no, I don't know what Roma is. I, he goes, I bet you do. And he and I wrote the book together. It's Roma stands for right out of my... Because that's where a lot of things is. This is a book, a little book about evidence-based decision-making. That we really don't have a lot of evidence behind what we do. We have a lot of clinical traditions. Yeah. I wrote a lot of, uh, every year I was writing books about what were the updated codes. I sat at those codes committee. So this one is, an, actually this is an anthology of 2014 through 2018. This also includes, I redid the, what we call the dental hygiene process of care as a framework for diagnosing perio, including using the updated AAP classification. That's all in that one. Then a very hot subject right now, teledentistry. Teledentistry, I've been talking about this. There's two teledentistry codes that were added a couple of years ago. And boy, talk about teledentistry. So many people all of a sudden want to talk about it with COVID. So with those books, that was one way of people learning codes. The other part of it is, again, our Dental Court Allergy Consortium is I looked and recruited hygienists and other interested people that just, they wanted to have a say and they never felt they could. So we gathered together and as a group, we come up with codes as we want to see them rewritten, revised, or added where we think things are missing. Because anybody could do that. Anybody listening on this podcast could go to ADA CBT and put in a code right now. As long as you write it and fill out the paperwork, the code committee is obligated to hear it. I didn't say it's going to pass, but they're obligated to hear it. So that's the CDT process there. With that core group, we, there's a constant teaching involved aspect of it because most of them are coming in with, not, let me ask you a question about TOPS. You said you're using coding. Are you teaching it as part of your curriculum? We do some of it in our practice management course. Is it extensive? The answer is probably no. Okay. And that's been one of the issues is there is no curriculum in, in medical, you know, so we can go and take medical coding courses anywhere. If they want a certification on, on medical coding, they're going to go through a HEMA, the American Health Information Management Association or whatever, to get a credential in medical coding. There is no credentialing in dental coding at this point. Although I just wrote, and I'm really thrilled to write it, ADA just did come up with a coding certificate program that they had me review. And I gotta say, I've been thinking about doing this myself for a while. They did a great job because they have a, a balance of 
great information that isn't about here's a bunch of codes to memorize. Here's the thinking process. It, it, it helps you do critical thinking and leave the videos and exercises, case history based. I think it's a great, great, great program that anybody that has coding responsibility in a practice, as well as dentists and hygienists, we're all a team. Right. We all have a part to play in this coding world. We have an opportunity more and more with medical coding because even on a dental form, there are four spaces, box 34A, where we can be adding, putting in ICD medical codes now. Because the thinking, and this is where what I teach a lot, is medical necessity. Dentistry, yeah, that goes over like this. Partly because, in my opinion, we don't diagnose. We just do stuff. Part of that is because CDT has just been about the stuff codes, but in order to figure out the right stuff to do, we need to diagnose. And we skip over that an awful lot in dentistry. Well, you know, what's a diagnosis? They need a crown. That's not a diagnosis, that's a procedure. So that whole thinking, medical necessity, people want to do go move over medical coding, and they think that all they've got to do is, you know, again, think procedures. Well, medical coding doesn't work like that at all, and there's no claim that's going to be processed without a documented medical necessity. So that's a lot of my work now that continues on, on an ongoing basis. Just last night, my Dental Phonology Consortium group met. We have seven work groups that these individual groups are coming up with different sections of the book about what codes that we want to submit for the next coding period. The thing about coding is you got to think ahead because we need to submit by November 1st of this year what we want to have for the committee to hear in March of 2021. So if they pass, go into the book in January 2022. Though that cycle has actually been shortened. It is a once a year cycle. It used to be every two years. It used to be every four years back in the 90s. So it was a very slow process. But because we have technology and so many things changing so rapidly, when this, this form of the code committee that's been around since 2012 was formed, that was the first thing that committee decided they need to do this once a year. So let's go back to the certificate program. Has that launched yet from ADA? It's done, they've done a soft launch. And then a thought loss, and they, I think they send it a little bit to us, the licensees. And I've been taking it part of it. They wanted me to write a testimonial so it's used in the marketing. <laughs> okay. So it's, it's available if you know to look for it. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Unbelievable story. So you created this passion and developed a business around it, which is, is something that I know many hygienists would love to do. Right. So what allowed you to make the leap and jump in with both feet? You know, because it's not easy. The entrepreneurial. <laughs> well, it isn't. And I know firsthand because I started a practice from scratch. But that entrepreneurial spirit, not everyone has it. And, and if you don't, you obviously, you know, should not be thinking this way or even thinking about jumping in. But when you do, you know, and you can't let it go. And so. You know, what allowed you to, to make the leap into building this business? Again, it goes back to those three letters, the determination and all that. I did, my husband was supportive, although, yes and no, he was. I mean, you know what? He couldn't understand it because he is an educator, worked in the same education place for 45 years. 
So the idea of being an entrepreneur is not something that's within his box. And over the years, I will say there are many times he goes, why don't you just go back to clinical? Because he understands, and that, that exactly what I'm saying there is I think what stops people. Because when I have hygienists that talk to me about doing something different, one of the first things I need to tell them is, first of all, they've got to have a bachelor's because that's entry level anywhere in the world, period. So if they don't have a bachelor's, they need to consider what they have just for the minimum of that. Additionally, that it'd be nice if you could go out and start a business and replace your salary, which is a pretty good salary hygienists make for their educational background, et cetera, et cetera. But that's an unrealistic goal. And I go, you know, often I'll say, hang on to your day job, <laughs> okay? At least somewhat, it, for two reasons. Like I said, for me, it was, I needed, to, I felt like I needed to stay practical and real as a speaker educator. And it was my learning laboratory. And that's why I stayed clinical as long as I did, because I wanted to stay real. Plus, I love patients. And another analogy I make is that I love patient care. I never left patient care or thought of doing something else because I didn't like it. But I knew that I could only make so much difference one-on-one. -on -one. And I thought if I put my pebble in the pond someplace else, the concentric circles of affecting more Clinicians would affect would it would lead to affecting more patients. So it still is about the patients for me. It always was. I actually love being a car hop. Okay, I love being a, a I was a, a, a server, a waitress. I don't think that's the right term anymore. But that's what I was. I would say I paid for my dental hygiene school. The thing is, is I love people. I think there's another part of it with with the. The idea of the, the work that I do in building the business. I'm a people person. And what I never thought I would be is a salesperson. Oh, I don't do sales. Yet, I don't. Well, yes, I do. I sell myself. I sell my own words. I sell my what I write. It's something that if you just set up to me at one point, there's going to be a big part of sales. Sales and marketing and accounting and all those things, I'd be like, yeah, because I didn't like that stuff. And you know what? I do it all the time. And I do, well, I still don't like accounting, I was just saying. <laughs> but it's part of the overall pictures that create success. Right. I think that no matter what, you know, we are marketing ourselves every single day. So if you were to tell me that, you never did sales, I would say, no, that's just not true because the bottom line is we are all selling every day, every day. So what do you think is the single best piece of advice you've ever gotten in your career? Can you think of anything off the top of your head? Just go for it. I'm personal. I might give a different piece of advice to a hygiene student at this point, but just go for it is a good, you know, good old Nike had a good thing. It's, it don't let the fear hold you back. Don't wait till you're absolutely sure. Or as a speaker, I heard one say, it sometimes it's ready firing. Yeah, I totally agree. Because where I am and what I visualized it as way back in the day looks very different. But anybody that's had children understands that. <laughs> Being a parent is way different than what we thought it was going to be. 
but that is how life goes. And the journey keeps evolving and I keep making new choices. But I'm not following, and that's the other part that's hard for harder people, I'm not following anybody else's path. I'm creating a path. I'm creating my own. Have other people had successful businesses? Can I learn from them? Yes. Do I have a business coach that I've been working with for the past eight years? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do I have other people that I work with for branding? Yes. And for marketing? Yes. I've brought all them in over time because I can't do it all myself. I can't think of it all. I have advisory groups. I have an academic advisory group. I have a demographic consortium. They have their advisory panel. I work with advisors because there's a lot of people that are smarter than me. And I'm okay with other people being smarter than me. And we learn together and grow together. One of my favorite authors is a man named Chuck Blakeman who wrote a book called Making Money is Killing Your Business. And one of the things he says is you have to have outside eyes on your business, right? You know, we don't see because we have tunnel vision and, you know, the blocks are up. We don't see everything that we should see. And we definitely need to have eyes on our business. You know, just like our dental practices, you know, you need the CPA looking at your tax, you know, implications, looking at your payroll, making sure that you're taking the deductions that are smart for you. Every year, that obviously, that changes. So if we don't have people looking out for our benefit, there is no way you can possibly know everything there is to know about business and finance in addition to being a really good clinician. There's just no way. You know, you have to have the support and the help. And, you know, more than anything today, marketing is critically important to the success of a practice. If you didn't use that marketing to your advantage during, you know, the COVID-19 shutdown, you're feeling the impact of that today. You know, communicating with our patients is critically important. Critically important. Absolutely. The other third part, even I mentored a lot of people with writing. Now that's where you gotta watch what you wish for because my mantra back in the early days, I wanna write and speak. And I had a magazine group came and offered me a column to write. I'm like, a column? Okay. I don't know if I wanna write with that rigor on a regular basis like that. So I asked the, the publisher, I go, can I write with another friend of mine? And they said they could. And after, so I pick my friend who's a procrastinator. Not sure what I was thinking there. And by the third month, it was making me crazy. And so I wrote to the editor who said, you found your writer's voice. I'm like, wow, I did. And I did. Yet at the same time, I've become... And I didn't know I was positioning myself, but I be, I've become not a columnist. I'm a feature author, okay? A feature author gets the center section of the magazine on the staple, your name's on the front of the magazine. You're talking about some good marketing stuff because the, I mean, I don't know what it is now with COVID, but a print magazine used to be that a page of a print magazine, dental journal cost about 10 grand. So I have a three page article. I now have a $30,000 ad and the thing that, again, it goes back to the other point that we're making about advisory. So when somebody's asking me about writing, I go, you need to have a trusted advisory group that's going to look at your stuff and tell you if it stinks, 
be, you have to have the proofreaders, you have to have the accuracy readers, you need to have all those things. And when you do that and you send that, that article in the cleanest possible to the editors, you get to be a favorite of the editor because they get a lot of junk. Because I also sit on a bunch of several different editorial pan panels and peer reviews, and there's some real junk that comes in the door <laughs> that I want to know some of the times if they even use, know how to use spell check. Well, I have to say that. I noticed that the same with, with some of the communications, even email, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, did you just send that to a professional? Yikes, you know? I mean, pay attention to grammar and pay attention to your spell check because you don't want, you know, I, I think we're losing the ability to write because of, you know, shortened messages. And now with texting, it, it's even shorter than emails were you know, you forget the I in the sentence, you know, you just get right to the point where, you know, I think that, you know, we need to get back to that. You know, we need the art of writing a good, like writing a good letter to, you know, your sweetheart or writing a letter to your family. That's a lost art. And I think we need to get back to at least the grammatical correctness of things, you know, but that's my, myself personally. No, I absolutely agree. At the same time, I teach writing medical necessities Twitter style. Not because I'm a Twitter fan, but Twitter is a 280 characters of concise language. And what I'm talking about with medical necessity is in a dental code form, there's 30 box 35 remarks. And that's to support anything that is with the procedures that are being done that supports medical, you know, there, the, any oral systemic need, okay? What are we doing that isn't connected to their systemic? That's the whole name, Beyond Oral Health. Everything we do is beyond oral health. And yet, this is a very limited space. And writing concisely is writing well. I mean, the best part of the writing process is editing and working with editors that know, and editors, usually, they, some people, oh, they really changed it. Did they really change it, or did they just take off the part that doesn't count? Because a lot of people write like they talk, which is lots of words. And I used to think that documentation, lots, was better. If it's not searchable, it's not legible, it's not understandable, it's not worth anything. No, you're right. So there's, there's, so there's both that needs to be done. We need to learn how to write well and write in full sentences at the appropriate times, but we also need to learn to write concisely. I mean, because I still see people, I sometimes think that they write like, you know, they're doing their essay. The reason for, you know, it's like, are you still trying to fake it by just using a lot of words to say nothing? Very interesting. I, I never thought of it from that perspective. I mean, really fascinating. I don't use Twitter very much, if ever, and so I'm not as familiar with it as I, as I am with other the other parts of social media. But really good point. Really good point. So who do you think has made the biggest impact on your life? Professionally and personally? Professionally, of course, my mentor, Harriet Legend, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Claudia Lovato, Claudia and Sharon Lovato, that was the practice that I worked in, worked with that we were so leading edge. Claudia was a futurist, he always was. And even when I first started working with that practice, there were 10 dentists, and at one point, as, as many as 25 staff, all within the relatively small space, because his idea at the time was to have all the specialties. 
over time, because we were doing some advanced learning with Averking and Omar Reed and a lot of the names in the industry, we actually got down to the three of us, Claudio, Sharon, and myself. Sharon, Claudio's wife, <laughs> was the hygienist who was going to dental school. So that was one of several times I replaced the doctor's wife as a hygienist. And there's no doubt that doctors' spouses can get a lot of negative labels from people that work in a dental office that are, in my experience, mostly incorrect. It's not an easy job. It's not an easy role, particularly if you're in practice together. That's not easy. I'm not in business with my husband. That brings a whole different wrinkle to the business world. So true. So true. Now, you mentioned earlier the death of your mom. Would you consider that, you know, being one of the biggest obstacles in your life that you've had to overcome? What an interesting question. I don't see it as an obstacle. I just see it as something that happened. And what happens so often in life is we, when we have big life events like that, we think of before it was like this and after it was like that. That's really not accurate, yet... I do see it as part of very important part of my journey because again, I had my mom and I think about it in, in comparison with my sisters. I had my mom for 17 years. My younger sister's 13 and eight. I only figured out in the last few years, eight, she was that little and she grew up and she had me as her mom figure. Wow. I didn't know anything. So was it very pivotal? Yes. Yes. Is it something that held me back? No, I don't think so in any way. If anything, it spurred me forward. Yet, the other part is that I've discovered is who I am is who I've always been. It was always in there. I peeled back layers of onion over the years, but I have, I've become, and I've become more me and clearer on my boundaries and things like, a few things like that that I've mentioned, but I am who I am. So you make an interesting point that I want to highlight again, you know, one of the things that I think occurs in people's lives, we get to, you know, these pivotal moments, as you just brought up, and we have choices, right? We could, you could have chosen to be devastated by your mom and do nothing, right? Or like you chose, you chose to continue down your path and do whatever it took to make sure that your siblings were saved, that you know, that they were cared for, but that you did not allow that to interrupt your path and your future learning. So I think that's important for the audience to understand that we can't let some of these, I call them obstacles, moments, you know, moments in our lives that do occur like divorce or death or, or you know, so many different packages, but we can't allow those those moments to define us. We have to define and make choices based on what we want to do and where we want to go. Just like you had said earlier that, you know, women allow themselves to be defined by others. We can't do that. We have to stand up and, and stand in our power. And I think you showcase that nicely. And that's, I started our meeting last night as I start many of our meetings that we have three choices in life. We can watch what happens, we can make things happen, or we can sit back and wonder what the hell happened. I choose the second one to make things happen. I know the choices I'm making today will predicate 
my tomorrows and my tomorrows and my tomorrows. Now, are there many things I can't control? Yeah, there are. But I can control how I think about them, what I do about them, and how I react to them. Um, and that's the part that, that I choose, and I choose to bring other people with me. <laughs> because I, what I really believe is there are not, there are fewer leaders and many, many followers. There's a movie, The American President, it was one of my favorites. It was with Michael Douglas and Annette Bening and uh, Martin Sheen. West Wing, the show, was eventually ba based off that movie. And there's a scene in there that, was ta that talks about leadership. And the words are something like this. In the absence of real leadership, people will follow anyone. Because so many few people see themselves as leaders. One of the important parts about my dental codology group and my Beyond Oral Health membership is to help find people's leadership skills and to help develop them. Because there's more people that, that are leaders that don't realize they were. I didn't realize I was. I was. I used to be the leader. Are you ready? Or if it's a very technical term, the parking lot bitchers. What's that? We'd sit in staff meetings and the doctor would always want to know and I, we'd all go, no, we not say anything. And then in the parking lot, I'd start, no, 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 no. and if they weren't unhappy, I'd help them figure out how they weren't, how they weren't happy. It was a leadership skill. <laughs> I choose to channel those same skills to a different direction now. Differently, exactly. And that's, that's, what, that's what a good leader does is they learn, right? And they change the way they do things based on the learning that they're doing. So... Absolutely. You know, you have to go through some of these experiences in order for you to get from point A to point B, right? Yeah, sometimes you have to go do them a whole bunch of times before you go, okay, oh, I got this one, I think. I know, I know. So when you reflect back as a young woman, do you think that you were born with innate confidence in your ability, or is that something that you have learned over time? I definitely learned it over time. Yeah, you've learned it over time. I was time. extremely shy, arguably. Matter of fact, when I graduated from hygiene school, even back then, my father did a little speech at a graduation party that said they never, of all the four of us, he never expected me to go to college, graduate from it. And as I built my business, he definitely never expected that. Because I, I had an older sister, I mentioned my two younger sisters, I have an older sister, two years older, or much closer in age, and she had very strong personality. And I never said anything because she did all the talking, and so I didn't have to. So here's one way I say it is the first 20 years I didn't talk, the third, second 20 years I learned to talk, the third 20 years I learned how to get paid for talking. Good, touche. Who in dentistry inspires you? Is there anybody that you can think of? Um, again, Omar Reed, Avril King, through the National Speakers and Mountain National Speakers Association. So we have Naomi Rohde and, and Jim Rohde. Of course, they created the smart practice business because they figured out a speaking business, a corporate business. They had three prongs to their success in their business. And they've, they've been friends and mentors and people that I admire. I've read lots and lots of books. I'm a, I'm a reader. I'm a, not only am I a writer, I'm a reader. And I read 
books of all types. One of my favorite books in the last couple of months has been Becoming by Michelle Obama. Whatever one's politics are, I particularly resonated because they're from Chicago, so they're telling, she's telling us the stories of Chicago. But her, the whole premise of the title of the book itself is that we're all human becomings. And that's a really important concept that there, there is no there. <laughs> when we get there, there has changed. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and the future is not set. It can change at any moment in any time. You know what, that's another point that you did when you were asking ask about my mother's death. That is the lesson that I learned back then. That is the, the big thing that stays with me, is that at any moment of any day, our life can change like that. Because it did for me. Yeah. So tell us one thing that people would be surprised to know about you. Besides being shy? <laughs> surprised. Um, I know one thing that I, I think that people might, might like to know that you love to go camping oh yeah oh yeah um that was we when we were in our 20s we used to do some whitewater rafting and my husband had a friend who had a motorhome that he said you want to take my motorhome and everybody else was intense and it rained and we were in a motorhome i'm going whoa let me think of what i like better so then <laughs> As I developed my company and stepped away from full-time clinical hygiene, my husband's a teacher, so he, and he would usually teach a summer classes, and then in August, we would take the month of August off, the entire month, and we, with the motorhome, we, we had a generator, we towed a vehicle, so we're completely self-contained, which meant that we could live life the 180 of what we regularly do. In other words, very rigorously scheduled and you gotta do this, you gotta do that. And we would just plan to go to an area of the country. No reservations, no have-tos, no timelines. Even if we had relatives in the area, we wouldn't tell them where we're coming because we might not want to bother to see them when we're there. And we lived unscheduled. And it was a practice for retirement. We did that for 17 years. We have been to 48 states. Uh, there's so many more that we want to go back to. We've been to five provinces. And I really love the idea of the road um, and what it means. Now, I've traveled a lot. I've spoken in 49 states. And I was supposed to speak in Arkansas, my last state, this fall. But that thing <laughs> with COVID everything. But anyway... I've been to Arkansas, it isn't that exciting, but anyway. That People been. that live there might think oh, differently sorry, about I'm that. I'm not to offend anyone, but it's like, yeah. But that's that was on my bucket list to speak in all 50 states. But we've been to all 50 states, and I love to travel. I like to be, I love that relaxation. I love that idea of no have-tos. And at the end of that month every year, we'd get back to, okay, it's getting time to go back. And I have the opportunity, and I do see it as an opportunity to ask myself, why do we go back? Why are we doing what we're doing? And I don't think we spend enough time asking ourselves that. Why do we do what we do? Are we doing it because for an awful lot in the beginning of my life, I lived the life that I thought somebody else thought I should as my parents thought I should. Then it was what my husband thought I should. I was, again, listening to all these others. But why do I want to go back? And it's very empowering because it's like, I'm going back because I want to. I'm not doing this because I 
have to. It's because I want to. And that's the place I like to live, is where we're doing the things that I want to that feels like it's making a difference. All right. That's a great place to be. I mean, certainly, I think that there's so many ways to make a difference in this life. And you have your little corner of the world where you're making a difference. I think many of us feel like, you know, this is what I want to do to make my difference. I think overall, we as human beings, you know, want to support each other and collaborate. And, and nowhere is do I see that more prevalent than in the industry of, of dentistry. I think that our profession really is one of the most cohesive, supportive professions out there that, you know, when something happens, we all pull together and we just make it work, you know, some way, shape or form. So I'm really truly blessed to feel like I've been in this for such a long time, but I love this profession as obviously you do. Last question. So do you have a personal model or a mantra that you live by? I have a couple of them. I have the three pillars of my company. The three pillars of my company is that I believe, and the reason I do the coding part and all that stuff, is I believe we can have a world with no oral cancer, that we can cure not just, just manage periodontal disease, and that we can meet the 2020 goal of the World Federation of Dentistry to have a caries-free world. Yeah, those are some big goals, but those are the internalization of those goals are about health. We have to start having a goal of health if we want to get health. If all we think we're going to do is manage disease, all we're going to do is manage disease. But the actual what pulls me through is something I use, and this is Maya Angelou. i got to give credit where credit is due. We do the best that we know, and when we know better, we do better. That's a really good one. That's a really good one. Well, Patty, I can't thank you enough for being with us. The amount of information that you passed off to the audience and clarity and insight to things in, in the world of dentistry and oral health is amazing. So thank you so much for being here with us. And I wish you all the best in your journey in August. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I'm looking, well, this year's going to be different, but, but I'll do it in my head. There you go. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Women in Dentistry podcast with Dr. MJ Hanlon. If you like our show and want to know more about us, check out our website, thewomenindentistry.com, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us for our next episode as we bring you another amazing woman leading the way for the next generation.